From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. What's going on? The whole building is shaking. What if someone you love changed so completely that after a while you could barely recognize them? The whole building is shaking. Would you still love them? Our seemingly solid earth will heave and twist and strain. It was dark in our bedroom when he said to me, The whole building is shaking. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be someone else? Oh my goodness, we're in the middle of an earthquake? What did he mean? ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio odds and ends that we find all over the world. On the air, on the internet, or maybe at an audio festival on another continent. If it's good, we note it, find it, beg, borrow, or steal it in order to bring you the best of what's out there. All you have to do is lend us your ears. And maybe that doesn't sound like a complicated sentence to you listening to it now, but to me, the way that he said it struck fear in my heart. What did he mean? Transformation, by its very nature, means upheaval. Upheaval means conflict, and conflict, my dear listener, is at the heart of every interesting story. What do you do, say, when you wake up fitfully unhappy with the way your life is going? Accept or reject? And what do you do when a natural disaster, a layoff, a disease, or a relationship explosion radically alters your previous course? Today on ReSound, stories of transformation and metamorphosis, intended and otherwise. We begin with the story of truth, tolerance, a seismic shift in one man's identity, and its rippling effects on his wife and family. What if someone you love changed so completely that after a while you could barely recognize them? Would you still love them? I grew up in Marblehead, Massachusetts, a classic old New England town known for its spectacular harbor and yacht clubs. We had our share of remarkable families, but the one I remember best were the Nadeaux's. I'd met this son when I was in the sixth grade and over time got to know his parents as well. Lynn was an award-winning math teacher and activist, and Doug was a prominent Boston attorney with degrees from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. I'd never experienced anything like Lynn and Doug Nadeau. Brilliant, successful, enlightened people whose large Victorian on the water was a social hub for family and friends. My own parents may have raised me, instilled their values, and taught me how to live. The Nadeaux's, they were rock stars. On April 23, 2004, Doug Nadeau was running on the beach when he stopped breathing and collapsed. At the hospital, when doctors removed his clothes, they found women's underwear and a series of foam pads fastened to Doug's hips and chest. The story of how those pads got there and how Doug died is one I used to think of as a tragedy. But now I'm not so sure. Now I think it's a love story. Lynn and Doug met in 1962 as grad students at Yale. When I asked Lynn about it, about the moment she laid eyes on Doug, the first thing she mentioned was what he wore. He walked into my life in a puffy blue ski jacket. I was a graduate student at Yale, and I was, in the, I was doing what they called at the time bells in the women's dorm, which means that one sat at a desk and watched the front door to make sure that nobody came in who would be threatening the women in the dormitory. When the door opened 
and this blue puffy jacketed person walked in. When I challenged him, he said he was just picking up his New York Times, which he was having delivered to the woman's dorm. He picked up the New York Times, wiggled it at me, gave me a smile out of the corner of his eyes that turned me into a statue. Even as a young man, Doug seemed to have everything mapped out. He knew what it took to be successful and what he needed to play the part. When he was in graduate school, he wore the nicest pair of brown corduroy pants, just the way a graduate student would dress. Once we got to law school, or he got to law school, he immediately bought a briefcase, gave up his backpack, got a suit, and wore his suit and carried his briefcase to law school every day for three years. After getting his bachelor's at Princeton and his master's from Yale, Doug picked up his law degree at Harvard before joining a Boston firm. Quite an accomplishment for a guy who'd grown up in rural New Jersey and whose parents hadn't finished high school. Lynn told me that for Doug, being a strong, competent attorney was more than just a job. It was a path to the mainstream, to acceptance and the power structure. Doug, I felt, had an inner plan about how to live his life. He had decided what he wanted. Turned out I fit into it. He had decided he wanted to be a homeowner, have children, be a successful lawyer. And I was just part of the plan. And I agreed to go along with it because I didn't have a plan. And I had signed up for the program. Doug and Lynn married in 1963. And within four years, they had two sons, Ted and Greg. In 68, they moved to Marblehead, where, from all accounts, Doug was a model citizen, husband, and dad. The Nadeaus thrived in the 70s, with Lynn and Doug becoming active in state and local politics. Ted and Greg excelled in high school and got into Princeton and Harvard, respectively. To the casual observer, this was a charmed family living a charmed life, and no year was better for them than 1985. It seemed as if it was the fruition of everything that we had worked toward. We were 45 years old. Our two sons had a good childhood and youth. Doug's career was doing wonderfully. He was an international lawyer traveling all around the world. And I was about to change. I was poised to change high school mathematics in the country. We were in great shape. We ran three miles a morning every day on the beach at 5.30 before we went off for work. And our lives were really perfect. After the best year of our lives, that spring, our younger son had gone away to college, and we took a trip with a group of lawyers to China, Japan, and Korea. And while we were there, Doug contracted a virus. When we returned, we couldn't figure out why he was always tired. And then he began showing neurological symptoms, which were eye blinking, head twisting, that's torticollis, facial grimacing, eyes being plastered shut. And what Doug called the grayness of his personal winter came down upon us as we searched for answers to what he had and what could be done about it. He was diagnosed variously as having a stress problem. And ultimately, it was, tra it was um, diagnosed as a Parkinsonian-like illness. Doug's condition was caused by a lack of dopamine, a chemical that under normal circumstances is manufactured by your brain. For various reasons, Doug's brain couldn't make dopamine, so the doctors loaded him up with medicine. 
But the drugs didn't last, and at night Doug would lose his mobility and end up confined to his bed, listening to classical music, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, anything to soothe his restless mind. Meanwhile, things at work were about to get a whole lot worse. His partners in the law firm closed the door so that clients would not see this grimacing, peculiar, head-twisting person. And eventually, one day, he went to work and they had taken his name. He was an equal partner with the other two, but they had taken his name off the front door and said that they had come to an end of their way. So Doug had to get another job with another law firm eating crackers, which seemed to be the only thing that kept his eyes open, so he would chew, and that would somehow or another keep his eyes open. He struggled and struggled to keep that competent, effective lawyer self. And in retrospect, I see him clinging to that old self, the self that he'd been all his life and worked toward, and having that self taken away from him bit by bit. And as he reached for it and as he tried to get back to it, he flirted with the idea of taking on a new self. In 1995, it looked as if he was going to be completely, he called himself a party vegetable. That is, he was going to be just like a plant in the corner somewhere. When we learned about a certain surgery called a pallidotomy, which he had in um, March of 95 at Mass General Hospital, that pallidotomy was a miracle. When he walked off the operating table into the arms of his family and friends waiting in the hospital room, we knew that it had been a miracle because he had been reduced to the hospital bed before. And after that pallidotomy, there was such hope We went to Sicily and walked from the center of Sicily to the coast with a group of English hikers, and he, Doug, led the way. He thought he would get his life back again. After the trip to Sicily, Doug was invited back to Princeton to receive its highest alumni honor in recognition of his having founded a Boston-based inner-city mentoring program. For the first time in years, things were looking up for the Nadeaus. In order to tell the next part of the story, I have to rewind back a bit to 1963, Lynn and Doug have just married and are living in Cambridge. It's late one night, and Doug comes to Lynn with a question. I was eight months pregnant. It was dark in our bedroom when he said to me, Lynn, did you ever wonder what it would be like to be someone else? And maybe that doesn't sound like a complicated sentence to you listening to it now, but to me, the way that he said it, struck fear in my heart. What did he mean? And then he told me that he had a penchant for cross-dressing and that he wondered what it would be like to be a woman instead of a man. And I was stunned, scared, disgusted, and uh, confused. After all, I was going to have a baby in a month. And um, that's when he told me. What evolved was that Doug explained to me that he would cross-dress when under stress, sort of a release at the time, sexual, that is when he was young, and 
before he got sick, when he went on trips to business trips and so forth, he would pack women's clothes with him. And if he were in a hotel by himself on a business trip, he would um, cross-dress. And I was disapproving, disgusted, all those various things. But I do remember once I thought, oh, come on, Lynn, be open-minded. Entertain the thought, who would you be, Lynn, if you had been born male? It was sort of the philosophical thought of, does gender create the being that we are? I mean, it's a question that people ask. How are you who you are? Okay, back to 1995. Lynn's been living with this secret for more than 30 years. Doug has this radical procedure designed to burn away neurons that aren't letting his medicine work. And initially, it's a success. But there's a catch. To tell you about that, here's Doug himself, speaking in the late 90s as part of a local cable documentary. You know, I learned after the operation that the operation also has an additional effect, which is to, which is to reduce the inhibitory neurons that deal with, with social conduct rather than just muscles. Mm-hmm. So that there's a, there's a definite effect, which has just recently been described to me as, as the effect of disinhibition. People who have, have had colonoscopy operations become less inhibited or disinhibited as a result of the operations. I'm one of four people who are being specially studied by the neurologist at the, connected with the Massachusetts General Hospital where this follow of surgeries took place because each of the four of us have, have engaged in, in activities since the pathology that we didn't do beforehand, which have created some issues in terms of our families or our friends or something like that. There is a strong body of opinion in the literature that brain surgery did increase the disinhibitory functions and really pushed him into living his life as a woman. Over time, Doug's surgery began to reverse itself and his symptoms came back one by one. The miracle, it seemed, was short-lived. It was harder, I think, for Doug to hope that the old Doug was really going to come back. And I think that soon after that, he retired, wrote a letter to the Boston Bar saying that he was giving up being a member of the bar. He wrote that he couldn't go to jury duty. And he actually gave up on parts of his life and took up more of the rest of his life, including the cross-dressing. Doug now considered himself a transgendered person named Donna. He began wearing women's clothes more and more, forcing Lynn and the boys to rethink their notions of identity and the factors that go into making us who we are. I guess he felt that he had finished he had finished his job as a father who needed to keep up an image and decided to let them know the real him. I can't say that it went very well. They were not pleased to learn this about their father. They were not pleased to know that their father had kept a secret from them, something that had mattered so much, and they didn't value that particular secret. Cross-dressing? What a stupid thing to want to do. And I, I think it was hard for them to see their perfect father and their image of who he was so, so changed. 
Doug, meanwhile, was going full tilt on the new identity. He joined several transgender groups and began crafting female body parts out of foam pads so he'd look more womanly. Over time, he turned the basement into a workshop of sorts, which Greg said looked like something out of Silence of the Lambs. Greg, I think, felt that his father, he felt that his Donna father was killing his Doug father, and I felt that way too, of course. Just as Doug's role as a father had come to an end, he pretty much gave up on being a husband as well. He didn't really care much about me at that point. At that point, he was trying to survive, and I was part of the scenery. He did not see me as a helper who was concerned about his well-being, and there was, I entertained the thought, how long can I go on in this peculiar, crazy life? I felt like I was living in a loony bin. I asked Lynn about the quality of her connection with Doug and how that changed over time. She said it wasn't so much the quality that changed. It was the quantity. It was, when could we touch again and be connected? And those times became more and more infrequent so that at the end of his life, I hardly felt that we connected at all. And that was a great loss for me because by dint of my effort, I knew early that I could hold on to that string as he wandered into the maze and I could pull and we could be connected. And yet, as hard as I pulled all those years, eventually we could connect over the grandchildren or over a beautiful sunset or over some small or large matter more and more infrequently. And I clung to those, those moments. Their moments may have been few and far between, but Lynn never left Doug's side. Being his partner wasn't a matter of obligation, she says. It was about loving a man she'd come to understand like no other, even when he couldn't love her back. I truly, truly respected his desire to be who he wanted to be. So when I went with him to places and I would meet strangers, I learned to say, hello, my name is Lynn, this is my husband, he has Parkinson's so it's hard for him to talk and he likes to be called Donna. And people were pretty accepting, people would call him Donna and they probably talked about it a lot later, but... I didn't care. At least they treated him respectfully and me respectfully. And at least I didn't have to hide. I didn't want to go through life pretending. On July 4th, 1999, I attended a party at the Nadeau's. Doug was there, his hair lighter, feathered almost. He was dressed in a frock, a faint trace of makeup around his eyes, his nails manicured and polished. We spoke at length. He was twitching and, unable to control his emotions, would occasionally burst into tears, even though the discussion was light, conversational. I was acutely aware of my girlfriend beside me and what she was thinking. I looked around. Teddy's kids, Greg's friends, neighbors, parents, everyone was aware of Doug's presence, yet no one stared or looked over their shoulder. Like Lynn, they'd come to accept him and the identity he'd finally claimed as his own. Mm. 
The last time I saw Doug Nadeau, he was with Lynn at the Marblehead Festival of Arts in summer 2003. He wore a dress, and unlike the experience at the house, this time he was in public and people weren't looking with compassion. Sensing this, I walked up to Doug and shook his hand. The words that came out of my mouth were not what I would have said had I thought about it in advance. They came from a good place, but they probably weren't what Doug wanted to hear. I said, how are you, my boy? It still hurts to think about it. As always, Lynn was there. She either didn't notice the people around them, or she chose not to. The thing that struck me was how great it was to see them together in public. Lynn had supported Doug through everything, even the years when he decided that being a woman and getting that right was more important than being a father or a husband. I think certain people would have let an illness and behavior like that take over their lives. Lynn chose to see it as an adventure. I think it was brilliant of Doug to save his life, his life force. He did spend two weeks being depressed during this 18-year period, and I saw what depression was. It was terrifying to me to see him without a zest, without a goal, without a reason to wake up in the morning. I preferred the impossible, want it my way, even if it's weird, the person who he became, then a depressive who could not function. On April 23, 2004, Doug suited up in his pads and went running on the beach in order to get in shape for his life as a woman. He was scheduled to begin hormone treatments in a few weeks, but he never made it. He collapsed in the sand and died three days later. Sometimes it seems like love is testing us, like it's a dare, a chance to see if we've got what it takes to get through situations and stay the course. I was always afraid that if I were tried in some difficult situation, I would just lay down and completely die and say, I give up. But I learned that I'm much more resilient than I thought I was. And that, um, for me, for me, it was a great story. It's the story of my life. In talking to Lynn over the years, I've asked myself, how would I act? Would I be as resilient or as constant? I can't say. But knowing Lynn and Doug Nadeau, I at least believe it's possible. And even now, um, as hard as life was, when I think, when people say to me, oh, Lynn, now that Doug's gone and he was really difficult in the last 18 years, you could date. I would never be interested in being with anybody else. Is that strange? It's strange for me. Doug was my, um, they use the word beshared. He was my beloved person, as impossible and difficult as he was. That's who he was for me. How Are You Who You Are was produced by Eric Winnick with Jay Allison for Transom.org. Eric is also the co-founder of Storyboard, a website dedicated to storytelling and oral tradition. For a link to his website, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. And while you're trolling your keyboard, scratch us out a missive, because sometimes I get really sick of talking. It's your turn. Write to us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. 
my name is Richard Famere. I'm originally from Chicago, and the decision which changed my life so significantly that I can't even imagine my life without having made the decision is to leave Chicago the moment I became legal at 18 years old. I just took off. And the idea was to wander, travel around the world. And I can't say I traveled in a linear line around the world, but I did voyage for uh, two decades. I certainly see the world and myself and myself in the world and the world in me very, very differently, I am sure, than I would have had I just um, stayed in, in the nest, the great nest of Chicago. You're listening to ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. There's a certain kind of transformation story that's a surefire, tear-jerking, pop culture hit. You know the one. An evil person with a hidden heart of gold is slowly tamed by someone with loving patience and as a result is forever transformed. Well, our next story isn't one of those, but it's close. I stole a dog once, a little curly-haired mutt, a tiny shivering thing. He had the bad luck to be owned by a family that kept him chained outside of their house all day and night. It appeared that no one touched him, that no one loved him. The sun beat down on his head in the summer and snowflakes gathered in his curly black hair in the winter. The days and years passed over him and he ticked off time like a dog-shaped sundial. My friend Sonia and I saw him there for years, or months at least, and hatched plans together for his liberation. Then one day I took him, unhooked his chain, gathered his small bird body into my arms and ran with him, ran awkwardly down the street with my chin bouncing on top of his head. Looking over my shoulder to the dirty yellow house, I whispered in his ear, You're free now, little dog. You're free. And in that moment, all swept up in my heroism, I never imagined there may have been a reason this dog was chained outside. Like, maybe he was a little bastard who bit children. But I would realize this as time went on. At first, I gave the dog to Sonia. She had said before that she wanted him, a point that was later contested, but I remember it clearly. It was in Sonia's house on Church Street a big dilapidated house inhabited by young punks and bohemians and a six-year-old girl named Eris that the dog tried to start his new life. The vet told us she thought he was 11 years old. Sonia bathed him and fleas dotted the water like poppy seeds. She fluffed him up with a towel and we cut the mats out of his hair. He had an underbite and cloudy eyes. She named him Frankie. I think it was Eris who got bit by him first. Since she was only six, we blamed it on her. You know, kids, they don't know the right way to handle dogs. But it wasn't long before everyone in the house had been bitten, and one by one they turned against him, saying, I'm sorry you've had such a hard life, little dog, but I still hate you. 
Sonia did her best to love him, but looking back on it, it was a chaotic environment for convalescence. People wandered in and out with dogs in tow. Sometimes there were punk shows in the living room. And after he established his bad reputation, people mostly stepped cautiously around him, even as he looked expectantly up at them, or begging for attention, stood up on his hind legs, putting on his very cutest act. They avoided him, saying, Oh no, I've heard about you. Sometimes I'd go there and find him curled up in a corner, glaring at people as they walked by. He seemed tormented and lonely, and, well, not much better off than he was on the chain. One day I came over to find Sonia making flyers that displayed a picture of Frankie, and below the picture a caption that read, I'm looking for a new home. I have issues, but I could be a great dog for a patient person. In the picture, his head was cocked and he smiled dumbly, as if the caption below him might have read, I have no idea what kind of bullshit is about to befall me. Like all flyers with dogs' pictures on them, it was heartbreaking. You said you wanted him, I said. And Sonia said, he's really hard, Katie. I've really tried. And so for the second time, this time lacking any heroic spirit at all, I picked up the tiny dog and brought him back to my house. For the first year of our lives together, Frankie and I got into the most bitter arguments. Most other dogs I'd known would retreat when yelled at, tails between their legs. Frankie was different. He escalated the argument like a smart-mouthed teenager. I would say, no, Frankie, and he would say, baring his teeth and scowling up at me. And then I'd say, bad dog, Frankie. And he'd say, this time looking more rabid and advancing on me as if to say, I'll take you down, you tall, skinny bitch. Finally, I'd be forced to get the broom in an effort to whisk him out of the room. But he fought the broom too, biting and thrashing, little pieces of broom in his mouth, practically frothing now and really honestly just acting like a crazy maniac. When he was in such a frenzied state, the last resort was to get a thick quilt and throw it over his head, lift him into a little ball, and set him in another room, sequestered for the time being to think about what he'd done. And so it went for the first year. He had his sweet moments, his fun moments, but inevitably, just when you'd think you had won his trust, he'd bite you again. His bites hurt, but worse were the hurt feelings. I'd look at him surprised and betrayed, my hand throbbing, and sometimes I'd yell, Fuck you, Frankie! We'd sit in separate rooms for a while, both reeling from anger and wondering if the other was ready to forgive. Even in play, Frankie sounded like a maniac. Here is the only recording I have of him, happily wrestling with my other dog, Memphis. You get the idea. If this was happy Frankie, try to imagine mad Frankie.
I'm sure Cesar Milan, the dog whisperer, would be horrified by my behavior with Frankie, the two of us battling it out for alpha status and remaining for far too long neck and neck in our fight to become the boss. Indeed, I often let my 14-pound, curly-haired jerk of a dog get the better of me. And yet, little by little, Frankie became a new dog. I learned his rules, which included never touching him while he was eating, and never ever attempting to move him when he appeared to be comfortable. And I learned that if you obeyed his rules, Frankie was tolerable, even good. Frankie in time learned my rules too, and we stopped getting in fights. We moved to the country and he spent his days with Memphis, lounging in the driveway and barking at the few cars that passed. He was happy. I feel like this part should be about how Frankie taught me patience and forgiveness, how he showed me that I could love something that was prone to fits of rage, that bit me, that bit my mom, that once, during a lovely picnic by the sea, leapt up and attached his tiny teeth to Sonia's face and dangled there until we delicately pried him free. But mostly, Frankie taught me about rules, figuring out what yours are, what other people's are, and learning to accept them. It turned out, in fact, that what Frankie actually wanted more than anything, more than freedom, was rules. Some sort of dependable, reliable routine. Being able to count on a walk in the morning and food at the same time every day. These were the things that made him the happiest. That allowed him to enjoy his days in the summer sun. Rolling in the grass as he sometimes did on his back. Like a beetle that got flipped over. Like the happiest dog in the world. Free from chains forever and ever. Frankie was produced and adopted by Katie Mingle. To hear more stories by Katie, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on Resound. My husband and I packed up all of our belongings, put them in a storage unit, and just went to London to see what was going to happen. And it was terrifying and exhilarating, and some people envied us, and some people thought we were crazy. And... Um, I think it was one of the best things we ever did, but I can't imagine ever doing something like that again. (laughs) I would say probably my biggest moment of change was the moment that I became a mother, only because you go from being all about yourself and then you go to being all about another human being that's completely reliant upon you and also offers you absolutely unconditional love and you don't you don't have to really do anything for it. It's the greatest sort of moment of change to have. And it's also the most overwhelming moment of change all at once. And I'm two years into it, and it's still a moment of change. <laughs> Transformations happen, whether we want them to or not. We age. Can't stop that. Someone paves paradise and puts up a parking lot. Really hard to stop that. Impermanence is at the very core of transformation. Thelon Oming, a playwright living in Toronto, tells our next story. It's a tribute to his father, a man who has reinvented himself many times over the course of his life as the world has changed around him. Where you are? 
one for the heater, eh? One strap for the heater? I don't think we need one. We'll have a look here, though. Yeah. What else has to win? The churn? The churn, yeah. My dad is 79 years old, and he collects antiques. Let me run to the checklist quick. Okay. The barrel, the butter cable. The butter shaping table complete with well-cooling basket. Unusual cream cans. I'm not a kid anymore. Old-time washer. Had a very full life. Fine original mint butter churn. I might do, not do all the hectic things I did before, but I'm still active. And the John Deere bill holder. I'm now pursuing passionately a thing that has always been a sideline hobby. The weather vanes. I loved anything related to the horse age. The collars, this is already in. Always had horses, drove horses, worked with them. The bells are all in that one box there. In there. Yeah. And, uh... I, uh, the humpback trunk, the bells, found as I accumulated these horse-drawn treasures, I had far more than I could ever house in my big buildings. Old time egg crates with fillers. So annually, maybe twice a year or more, I would, uh, wheelwright's machines, hold auctions. Harness maker's bench. I've come from Toronto back to my dad's farm in Alberta to help him get ready for his next sale. Here, do you want to take these straps? No, over top. Okay, it comes up back pad in the middle. Gotta hang on me. It's not often that I come out here. So over the years I've kind of forgotten a few things. Like the right way to carry harness without tangling it. Hames at the top. Hames. Back pad. What's that at the end? You hang on the bottom there? It's the brickiness. So I watch my dad harness the team. We hitch up to one of the fancier antique sleighs that'll be selling at auction in a few days and take it out for one last spin around the farm. ride through the backwoods and across the frozen lake. The land hasn't really changed much in all the years since my dad first came upon it. I was flying back in 1957. It was in the fall. I'd been up on the uh, barren lands of the Northwest Territories and coming in from the north and uh, flying sort of uh, southwesterly. Bad weather, we were flying low. The sun hadn't quite set yet. Good visibility. Looking down, I saw this terrain. First attracted by about 85 acres of lovely virgin spruce wood, lots of big timber, and above all, a beautiful lake about a mile and a half long that ran... Uh, south to north through three quarters of land. I said, God, where have I been? I recognize this place. This is the old muskrat farm from the early 1920s. This is where I used to go with Professor Rowan. We used to catch snowshoe hares for his uh, experimental work. I said, that's got to be the place. So my dad bought this patch of land in Strathcona County near the city of Edmonton 
and used it to house hippos and elephants. It was his boyhood dream to build a large sanctuary dedicated to the preservation and perpetuation of the world's vanishing wildlife. The Alberta Game Farm opened in the summer of 1959 as the first independently run zoo in the province. Great open area for a large pack of wolves, and the wolves could roam from one end to the other. Had a thousand peafowl running free on the ground, so people loved that. Starting and fanning their feathers, and had I think uh, 11 species of cranes, if I remember right. Had great flocks of rheas, the South American version of the ostrich. <laughs> All the families of zebras, the wildebeest, yaks, uh, recent the European bison, barren ground caribou, woodland caribou, a great herd of reindeer. We had lots of wild coyotes there. People would see them every day. Foxes, lynx, marten, fisher, cats, red pandas from China. Polar bears were added, a big polar bear compound built. And of course the gorillas were a super attraction. All sorts of exotic, different cats from Russia. China leopards, like Siberian lynx. You can breed the snow leopards and jaguars. Big Siberian tigers. Three swan hill grizzly cubs, which became world famous. The white rhinos, I captured them in Africa in 64. Of course, the 1960 Muscox expedition. Anything that could take our climate, we had. To raise money in the off-season, my dad would go on tours with his tame cheetah. He became a traveling zoologist, visiting elementary schools across the country to spread his message of conservation. Oh, I can still see those exuberant young faces. Never saw a thing as, as wonderful as a live cheetah. Never petted one, never heard it purr. Never sat on a table beside it and had their picture taken. There were TV shows, National Geographic specials, nature films. It was growing by leaps and bounds. People were coming from every, every year, got bigger and better, bigger and better. And pretty soon, 10,000 people on a Sunday. And subsequently, as uh, the game forward money, I would uh, add more land add uh, another quarter to the north on the west side and four quarters on the east side plus adjacent lands and so it made a, a pretty whopping pile of land at 1600 acres all told by the mid-1970s the game farm had reached its peak after 10 years you had one of the greatest collections on the face of the earth 3200 animals 100 species probably the best ungulate hoofed animal collection anywhere but the costs of running a private zoo were too high. Skilled workers were going for better jobs in the oil patch. And there's a time I've always said to be in and a time to be out. And animal rights groups were gaining momentum. Rather than submit, I will just gently phase the thing out. Each year, as I was growing up, there were more empty cages, until my dad finally closed his gates to the public for good in 1997. Today, most of the zoo infrastructure has been torn down, but some old shelters still remain, rotting in on themselves. The fences are leaning over, and you can see these old concrete compounds in the forest with the trees growing up through them, and they look like the ruins of some ancient civilization. The land has gone back to its original state, my dad would never want to sell it. As long as I can, I want this land to stay uh, wide and open. 
He's seen the subdivisions grow around him as the city sprawls further and further out. I just cringe when I see beautiful land with wonderful big trees being bulldozed down and then pretty soon get communal uh, human habitation and, you know, there's nothing left. After the game farm closed, my dad sold a quarter section of his land to a rancher that wanted to try buffalo. But as the market continued to drop over the years, the rancher changed his mind. A few months ago, my dad got news that his neighbor is trying to develop that now subdivided property. Well, I received a letter from Jerry Malinka, Planner 2, Planning Service Branch. So my reply, since I acquired this land in 1957, Lost Lake has been scrupulously maintained. It boasts the most luxurious water lily population of any lake in the county. No motorboats or hunting ever allowed on it. It is a mecca for a wide variety of waterfall. In fact, loons have nested on the lake. The land for proposed subdivision is reputed to be the highest point of land in the county. My concern is that is what will happen to the pristine freshness of this body of water. If toxic effluents, pesticide residues, human waste, etc., drain into it from the proposed new development, its integrity must be protected for all future generations to enjoy. My dad is trying to have his land officially recognized as a sanctuary and protected. It is uh, the last uh, enclave of good natural land in this county. You only have to take a horseback ride or a walk or a buggy ride back in those areas and to realize that you know, the land means a lot more than money. But he knows this fight will be expensive. There's a lot riding on this upcoming auction. Well, another trailer will be here at noon. My plan for it would be to put one big carriage in there. My dad makes his living today by holding auction sales. Well, actually, before I was even out of the game farm business, I had a good collection. And uh, I launched the first auction, but well, they've been a success ever since. It's not heavy, is it? Huh? How heavy is it? Well, it's fair much like the game farm. It wasn't done before in Alberta. There's everybody that said, well, we're full of so-called self-styled experts. He said, oh, that'll never hear. They're going to make that go. The mechanical age, the age of the jet, the computer. Well, they're not just little horse-drawn stuff. I said, listen, the country's full of nostalgic yearnings for the old past and the beauty. He's been invited to hold an auction of his finest pieces at this year's Canadian Western Agricultural Fair in Regina. Here, you're good at that. Shove yeah. that through there. He's hoping it'll be his biggest sale yet. See it's going one way or the other. Hardly. The last trailer is loaded. At midnight, we start the 10-hour drive through Saskatchewan. Oh, easy, easy, easy. Oh, boy. Are you braking, then? My dad prefers to drive non-stop. What's your mileage, Tinker, read now, your click thing? I ask him why he still does this. If I don't do it, it'll all become null and defunct. I don't know if I'm ready to quit it altogether yet. Gotta see what happens in the West. If the economy goes sour, people no longer can afford to come to auctions, then you'd have to take a pretty stern view. I don't really know what's going to happen to my dad's farm. 
but I know he's counting on the money from this sale. My dad does the color on each piece first. As you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we had a number of people phone us and said, where the heck do you fasten these on the saddle? The time on the horn? <laughs> One fellow wanted to know if they fit it on the stirrups. But they fit on the back pad. You just screw out your turrets where your lines go through. And that's the most, just uh, move them gently. Let the people hear that sound. But the wonderful soothing sound of the horse, there's nothing like driving with them in the winter. I guarantee you, I've proven it a hundred times, on a cold winter night, when the stars are twinkling, and the moon is creeping up, you can hear these five miles away. And then the auctioneer takes over. All right, here she goes. She's brand spanking new. She's got all the toys on, scotch tops and all. All right, where do you want to be at about 3,000? At 3,000. Mark my words. You're going to see how this sells. Mark this. Can you bid here, folks, and get started here? Where you start it where you like, folks. You're saying, let's go here. We've got good ring men out there, handsome young men that just dying to take your bid, folks. Go ahead and use them. We're going to sell a mile your way if we don't get a bid here. Folks, I'm not going to scold you. That's not my job here today. Folks at a farm sale were doing better than that. Five bid, five and a half, five and a half. That's below market, folks, but it's an auction sale, and that's why you're all came here. Five and a half, sold them right through there. Five hundred dollars. Sixty-six buys them. And they're going to do that once, just to show people that back She's trying to get an election. These guys are like a bunch of... The auction didn't go as well as expected. That sleigh is gone. It's off the mat there. More than half of the pieces uh, weren't sold. The two, the three-seater. Three-seater three and the little red one. The three-seater and the black one here are sold. And the next two come home. God damn it. When push came to shove, they put their hands up. We worked through the night. Reloading the antiques. <laughs> Wonder, Pascal, if we should put the buggy in first and we'll see how much room we got. You want to take the wheels off the buggy? Yeah, the front wheels we got. Okay, what about all this stuff that's sitting in it? Is that going to ride okay? The wind picks up and it begins to snow. I know how Napoleon felt now when he left Moscow. <laughs> it was also the dead of winter. At three in the morning, we finish loading everything that we can and then begin the long drive home. I think uh, you have to do the things that you like. I don't know, once you pass the age of 50, things move awful fast. Boy, the years go like blitzes. Oh. You'll notice it before you know it, you'll be 30. And then 40. Then 95, and holy mother. Life is a short passage. My father used to tell me that uh, nothing is a total loss. There is a plus side to everything, regardless of how bleak it looks while you're doing it. You may be stuck in the mud hopelessly and say, oh my golly, this 
unbelievable. I could never be worse. Well, it could be. But out of that, you might have learned something. That's the rigors of the business, you know. We've got to take our lumps and see. Onward we go. My dad's worked hard all of his life, and he has no intention of spending the rest of it any differently. He belongs to the old world, in love with the past but still fighting for the future. And I have a huge amount of respect for what he's accomplished. <laughs> it's a lot to try to live up to. I don't say this to be immodest, but uh, I will tell you quite frankly, the type of tours I took across the Dominion from Victoria to Newfoundland, entire Northwest Territories, the Yukon, Alaska, I'd venture to say will never be duplicated. Well, this is me on the road seven days a week, 40 years at a stretch. It doesn't matter where I go today, the remotest corner of anywhere in this big country, without fail, people will come up to you and say, look, you came to my school. And I'll say, what grade were you? I was in grade four. I'm married now, I've got a family, I'm farming, and I tell my kids, you don't know what you missed. I've never been one that should, uh, just for the sake of seeing your name in a newspaper or something, I had enough of that. I seek notoriety of any type, I don't need it. I don't do much public speaking anymore, I do on occasion, but uh, I don't even want to do interviews, but uh, I uh, occasionally get roped into it. And I live almost by the Mao uh, Zedong principle of essentially trying to become the nameless man and the faceless society. Emerge when you have to. Stay hidden most of the time. Keep people guessing. That's kind of good. I kind of like that. My dad today is a very private person. He's elusive in his solitude, kind of like the animals he used to protect, furtively disappearing into the trees. My Father and Other Animals was produced by Thelon Oming. It originally aired on the CBC's Outfront. This appetite which arises. The average life of a taste bud is 10 days. It was that special blend of fat and salt. Fries, gravy, curds. That seemed to make everything okay. It doesn't taste like chicken. And it has to come out somehow. If you're a regular listener to our show, you know that every year we put out a call to anyone and everyone to produce short audio works of two to three minutes that follow a certain set of rules for our annual Short Docs Challenge. For this year's challenge, we teamed up with the James Beard Foundation and received nearly 250 Short Doc submissions inspired by the idea of appetite. The stories also had to be presented in three courses and include one of the five tastes in the title, bitter, salt, sour, sweet, or umami. Generally, the Third Coast staff picks the winning stories, but this year we're doing something totally different. We also want you to vote for your favorite from the top eight Short Docs finalists. The submissions that collect the most votes will win our first ever People's Short Doc Award. Here's a preview of these eight finalists, just a taste to get your ears perked and your mouth watering.
Sel Toifasson, salt three ways. In the beginning, there are the potatoes. The potatoes must be stored at 8.7 degrees Celsius until they are freshly sliced, very thick, as they are the vehicles that will transport the world into your mouth. The last morning was a sweet one. Salt on the lips. Hey, Susan, what's my ideal again? Your ideal? Yeah, that's that thing. Where you want to have sort of an erotic dinner, that thing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sweet cheesecake heartbreak. We'll call him Bob. His family was of Polish descent, and so is mine. I had this idea of us getting married and having 17 kids and this amazing hyphenated last name with skis flying everywhere. Ski, 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 Blackbird pot pie, not the pie umami made. I got blackbirds! I got blackbirds! <laughs> Whatever you bought, 50, 60, 70 birds was all put in that one pie. Before you cooked them, you cut the head off, but you left the feet on. Sweet baby June eats the world. 7.20 a.m., the third bottle. When she wakes up in the morning, if I'm not awake yet, she just starts smacking me in the face. Bittersweet apostrophes. This morning I weighed in at 430 pounds, which at my age of 37 is akin to a death sentence. My health is failing and I've been on a diet for at least half my life, but losing weight only gets more difficult. Umami gas mask. Got out my camp stove, frying pan, the last bit of cooking oil. When was the last time my mouth watered like this? Mm, mm, mm. It tasted like, like the golden sun. That mix was produced by Third Coast intern Maya Goldberg-Safer. Hungry for the full plate? You can hear the rest of these Short Docs finalists, all eight of them, and then vote for your favorite at thirdcoastfestival.org. Now, voting for the People Short Doc will continue only through July 31st. So stand up, be counted, go vote. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation and the Menaki Foundation. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.